Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Well, good morning, church. How are you? Good. My name is Katie, and I am just so pleased to bring the word to you this morning. If you have been around here over the last few weeks, you know that we just finished a six-week series on the birds and the bees, right? How many of you can just be honest enough to say, I'm kind of glad we're done with that? Anybody? It was a really good series. Uh, There was a lot of good stuff to it, good conviction and truth. But I have good news for you. We're entering into a much lighter topic this morning, and that is eternity and the reality of heaven and hell. So um, much lighter. Take heart. It's going to be a good morning. I I wish I was kidding, but I'm not. That is what we're talking about this morning. And we are entering into a new series as we anticipate Easter, as we look forward to contemplating the cross and celebrating the resurrection. We are going to take these three weeks leading up to Easter, and we are going to kind of take some specific moments out of Jesus' last week here on earth. And so we're going to look at um, some last that we know Jesus knew it was his last week here on earth, right? He knew that, and so he must have been intentional with the things that he was talking about, the things he was doing. And so this morning, we are talking about the last parables, the last parables that Jesus spoke on. And so you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. We are going to be in that text this morning, but I just want to give you a little bit of context before we just jump right in. The chapter before that is chapter 24, and it is called the Olivet Discourse. That's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And just so you kind of have a picture of what's happening here, Jesus is talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, probably the Tuesday before Good Friday. And so he is talking to them. He's just kind of dropped this bomb on them that the destruction of the temple is coming. And so the temple was something that meant a lot to them and to their relationship with him and with God. And so this was a big deal. That he he was telling them that the temple was going to be destroyed. And so they have questions about that. They have questions about when he is going to come back. And they have questions about the end of the age. And so he is then answering these questions, right? The disciples, we can kind of relate to the disciples in this intrigue and interest in the last days. And so while this text, chapter 24, is very important, and I strongly encourage you to go look it up, do some research, read about the abomination of desolation, right? Like, it's fascinating. But for today's purposes, we're just going to summarize chapter 24 with verse uh, 42. It says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. We do not know when he's coming. He's coming like a thief in the night. We don't know when it will be. Even Jesus has restricted himself from knowing when it will be. And it's hilarious to me that believers, right? People who read this text and absolutely believe it to be true, still try and predict when he's coming, right? (laughs) 
I saw a reel on Instagram or TikTok the other day, and it said it was this lady, and she was kind of making this sassy face. And on it, there was a text that said, that moment that you realize that the last day of this year, right, New Year's Eve of 23, 12, 20, 12, 31, 23, reads 1-2-3, 1-2-3. And she says, y'all better get right with Jesus. And I just like, in that moment, I was kind of like, wait, what is the biblical significance of those numbers? Like, maybe he is coming back. And I had to stop myself and say, no, this is, it doesn't mean anything, right? We do not know when he's coming back. But like I said, we can all relate to just that feeling that the disciples had. We want answers. We want to know what it's going to be like and when it's going to happen. I think this gets stirred up every once in a while in us when something happens in the world, right? So we see an earthquake in Turkey that killed 50,000 people. And you know that Jesus said something about earthquakes, right? And so you're like, maybe this is, maybe this is it. Maybe this is a sign. Or we hear about rumors of wars and wars and balloons coming across. Like, wait, what is going to happen? Like, maybe we are the final generations living here on earth. Or maybe something happens in your world that you genuinely ask yourself, Lord, how long? Jesus, come quickly. That term, Maranatha, that's a, that's a word that the church has used for a long time. And it means, Jesus, come quickly. But we have to remember that the second part of that phrase, the, the other implication of Jesus, come quickly, it means, Jesus, come and judge us. We are ready when you are. Come quickly and judge us. Can we honestly say that? Can we say that we are ready? And so Jesus gives some info to the disciples in that chapter. And then he talks about he, the next chapter, chapter 25, what we're going to look at today. He unpacks three parables. He gives three stories. Parables are what we call in uh, kids' ministry, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And so basically, Jesus spoke in these parables all the time. Our tiny little three-pound brains just can't totally grasp the things of heaven. And so it's one of his many graces to us that he speaks in these parables. And so we're going to look at them. A couple of notes before we jump in, though. Um, one of the reasons that we're talking about this today is we all need periodic reminders that eternity is real, that this life is not all that there is. And we have to believe that if Jesus is choosing to talk about this in his last week here, it should mean something to us. It should be something that we visit and revisit and stew on. And secondly, we have to keep in mind as we read through these difficult parables, that the heart of God in Jesus telling them to his disciples is a heart of love and concern for the welfare and endurance of his church. He cares that all of us would make it to the end and that he would be able to say, welcome, 
Come into this kingdom that I've prepared for you. It matters to him, and so it should matter to us. Amen? So we're going to read each of these stories. I'll make a couple comments along the way, and we'll apply it to our lives. But as, we, as we're reading through them, I want you to pay attention to a few things. In each parable, there are two types of people going to two different destinations, and at some point, it's too late. So let's start in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Yes, I know. We're done with that series. I promise. (laughs) The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, since there will, be, there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Everyone turn to your neighbor and say, Get your own oil. (laughs) All right. So, We see here and in other places in the Gospels and in Revelation that the kingdom of heaven is compared to a marriage feast. It's really obvious as we're reading this text that the Hebrew traditions around marriage are very different from ours, right? Why is it called the bridegroom and not just the groom? Why are there 10 virgins? Why is he coming there at midnight? And so it's important for us to see the cultural context um, that Jesus was speaking in. Back in those days, there were probably these three stages of relationship that led to marriage. So a man would pay a price. He would purchase a woman to be his bride. And then they would enter into this stage of betrothal. So when he's made that purchase, they're engaged. And then they enter into the stage of betrothal where the man actually leaves and he goes and builds their house. He he leaves. um, It could be six months up to a year, maybe even more than that. That was very custom. And they didn't have text messaging that's like, hey, how's it coming? Like, can I FaceTime and see the project? Like, are you on track? Or what's an ETA? Can I get a ballpark of when you're going to be home? The bride's job was to be ready at any point for when the bridegroom would come. And so just like that, we are in this betrothal stage in our relationship with Jesus. He has bought us with a price. He has left and he's going to prepare a place for us to live. And so now we, as the bride, are waiting and anticipating when he's going to come back. And so the parable continues then into that marriage 
the next stage, which is the actual marriage. The bridegroom comes back. His best man's like, hey, it's time. Come on in. It's time to party. And all 10 virgins are surprised. Those 10 virgins are probably similar to like bridesmaids. And so the 10 virgins have fallen asleep and they're all surprised when they hear that he's back. And so we see there's five wise and five foolish. The five wise got to go into the marriage feast and the five foolish did not. The door was shut and it was too late for them when the bridegroom had returned and they didn't have their oil. And so two kinds of people, the wise and the foolish, two destinations, they were in or they were out, and it was too late. Let's turn back to Matthew 25. We'll read the parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made you two more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I would reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <sighs> Everyone take a deep breath there. That's a tough one, especially the end there. Again, we want to look at some of the cultural context that would inform this parable. What is a talent? There is some debate on how much money this was, but it is a large sum of money, maybe up to even 16 years worth of pay. And so it's just this crazy amount of money. And so maybe you've heard this parable given in a sermon specifically talking about your finances and stewarding the money that God has given you well. And absolutely, I think that applies. 
And maybe you've heard it as stewarding the gifts and the talents that God has given you. And so if you can juggle, juggle for the Lord. And if you can clog, clog for the Lord. But if you can do both at the same time, amen, right? That's more glory for the Lord. And so that absolutely does apply. We should give our talents and everything, every personality trait that God has given in us, we should steward well for the glory of the Lord. The broad implication, though, is any opportunity that God puts in front of you. It could be money. It could be um, the gifts and talents. It could be a friendship. It could be a conversation. And so we see there are two good and faithful servants and one wicked and slothful servant. And it was too late for the wicked and slothful servant when the master came back and he hadn't done anything with his money. He had nothing to show for it. And so to the first two, he said, enter into the joy of their master. But the other was cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, two kinds of people, good and wicked servants, two destinations with God or apart from him. And it was too late. Okay, last one. The final judgment, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life." Here we see the Son of Man coming in glory, on his glorious throne. It's not baby Jesus anymore. It's not Jesus hanging on the, on the cross. It's Jesus coming back as judge. All the nations are herded to him. Every person comes and is gathered to him. And he separates them, the goats and the sheep. He tells the people on the right, you served me, you gave me a drink, you gave me something to eat, you clothed me, and you visited me. 
enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to the goats on his left, he says, you didn't do those things. I gave you an opportunity to serve me through the least of these, and you didn't feed me, you didn't clothe me, you didn't visit me. And it's revealing of their faith that they didn't do those things. And so we have two kinds of people, two animals, two kinds of people, goats and sheep, two destinations, God's kingdom or the eternal fire. And it was too late. And so we see in these three stories, the two types of people, the two different destinations. And at some point it's too late. It's final. It's set. You can't change it. And there are few pains like the pain of getting serious about something too late. Getting serious in preparing for an interview. Getting serious about uh, preparing for a race, training for a race. Getting serious about studying for a test. Does anyone else have nightmares still that you're back in high school and you have a math test that you didn't prepare for? Like, I still have that. The feeling of too little, too late is devastating. And we can only imagine those, those pale in comparison to the pain and the regret that will happen on that day. It is sobering. And so I want to go back and explain these stories a little bit further and give us some takeaways. The parable of the virgins. In the end, the difference between the wise and the foolish virgins is that the wise had oil and the foolish thought they had more time. The wise had prepared for the bridegroom to return. We don't see it in the text there, but at some point they said, wait, I have to go get oil. They sacrificed ahead of time. They planned ahead. The foolish thought they had more time and so they hadn't gotten oil yet. And so what is the oil? What does that represent? The Bible makes a clear connection between oil and the Holy Spirit. Thematically, it ties them together. And so when someone was anointed with oil in the Old Testament, we see that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit and they were able to go and do what God had asked them to do. There was a marked difference. And so when we genuinely put our faith in Jesus and his cross and the empty tomb to save us, we get the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says, The Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation to all those who believe. And we still have to choose how we're going to live our life after that special moment of salvation. We have to choose whether we're going to live according to the Spirit or according to our flesh, as it says in Romans 8. Let's read that, Romans 8, 5 through 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those living according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace." If you live according to the Spirit, if you are reading God's word and you're listening for his voice, you're increasing the Holy Spirit's ability to move and speak in your life. You're increasing your oil. If you are obeying God's voice and you're, you're doing what he's asked you to do, you're increasing the oil in your life. 
And if you're walking according to the flesh, thinking about my own comfort, thinking about what I want for my life, we're diminishing the Holy Spirit's ability to move and to convict and to lead us along these paths of righteousness. The foolish virgins thought they had more time. I think that looks like um, maybe when I'm married with kids, I will plug into a church and I'm going to get serious about like really getting in community and, and going to church every week. Or when this crazy season of work is over, I'm really, I'm really going to dive into God's word and I'm going to read my Bible every day. And eventually that day doesn't come. There's always a reason and an excuse on why now is not a good time to get oil. As we're looking for little moments that we see the heart of God in this, I think the fact that the bridegroom delays really shows us God's heart, right? He is waiting that all who will come, come. I went down a weird rabbit hole this week. Does anybody do that? You like see something on Instagram and it's like, huh, I'm gonna do a little research. And then an hour later, you're like, wow, that was a deep dive. I did that this week on nuclear bombs. <laughs> and so I'm probably on a list somewhere. Um, but it was, it was actually really fascinating. There are over 12,000 nuclear warheads just ready to go right now. Like, isn't that amazing? That is more than 120 times. Like, that's sufficient to blow up our world 120 times. And I just, I, I found myself, this is a for example, by the way. What if God, in his sovereignty, in his love and concern for his people, is holding back the end, right? I feel like people are dumb enough uh, leaders are power hungry enough. We're all corrupt enough. I just would have thought we probably would have blown ourselves up by now. But God is holding back the end. Like, could that be an example that he longs for all to come? And so he's holding back the end that maybe even more will come. At some point, it will be too late though. And God will say, Jesus, it's time. And maybe even the more likely scenario for us is that our individual times will be up here on earth. Because Jesus might not come back tomorrow, but we're not promised tomorrow, even if he doesn't. We have to live our lives ready for either one. And so what does living ready look like? Does it look like being a nun or a monk and going to a monastery and, you know, opening our Bible and just praying all the time, hoping that when Jesus comes back, he finds me ready? Or is it living our lives, parenting our kids, going to work, all while walking according to the Spirit and holding the lamp with the oil in it? It has to be that one. Otherwise, we'd have to throw out half the New Testament that tells us how to live our lives, right? And so we live according to the Spirit and increase our oil along the way. And I think one of the main takeaways here is that you can't get into the marriage feast on borrowed religion and or borrowed oil. And you can't get into heaven on borrowed religion. 
Jesus is responsible for our salvation. Amen? He, it was only through him that we can get into heaven. But it is up to every single person to grasp that salvation before the end comes. You cannot rely on your parents' oil. You cannot rely on your spouse's oil. You cannot rely on your pastor's oil. It's up to each individual. And at some point, you may have to say to someone, get your own oil. And that's hard and that's painful because it's usually people that we love and we care about. It's not that we're not spending ourselves for people. It's not that we're not sacrificing and giving generously. Those are all things that we do when we walk according to the spirit, right? But it is up to us to say, is this relationship, is it drawing me closer to God or is it hindering my oil levels? This job and these coworkers, I know that when I get with them, I, I waver and I don't stand firm and I'm convincing myself that I'm evangelizing when I'm actually compromising. We cannot, um, we cannot give other people our oil because we might not have enough for ourselves in the end. The last words of this parable are watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour. My dad loves the Blue Angels, the right U.S. Navy fighter jets, and he's kind of passed that love on to me. Um, uh, when they were here last year or a couple years ago, we went up to the roof and we watched them here at the church. It was awesome. Um, but really, anytime a flyover happens, it's like, okay, I'm going to orient my day so that I am listening, I'm ready to run outside at any moment to, to go and see them, right? And I think this is a similar concept to waiting for Jesus, to watching for Jesus. The anticipation should change our behavior. We should orient our lives around the fact that he is coming, not just when, when he's coming, Watch, therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour. All right, let's go to the parable of the talents. We have to have enough oil on the day that the bridegroom returns. And we have to do something with the opportunities God's given us while we're here on earth. I love that it's not the amount of opportunities that gets us into heaven, right? It's not the amount of opportunities that God has given us here on earth that determine our fate. We see that with the middle servant, right? He got two talents, and so it was, it was less return, but he got the same reward. He still heard, well done, good and faithful servant, it's not about how much money we gave. It's not about um, how many people we led to Christ. It's about faithfully serving God with whatever he gave you. And notice that he gave it to you. He gave it to you. One of the major problems with that last servant is that he's accusing his master of how he's running his business, even though it's his business, right? Do we have that perspective that everything is God's and he can do with it what he wants? And every opportunity he's given me is a grace that I don't deserve. 
Austin and I are working really hard to live on a budget this year. And we're, we're enjoying it, right? We're, um, it's uh, telling our money where to go rather than wondering where it went. And our kids are not enjoying it as much, right? <laughs> so they're, they're like, oh man, we're not eating out as much. And um, why aren't you buying these snacks? And it's a really good opportunity for us to say, you don't get to decide what we do with our money, right? And so actually the goldfish that we give you for a snack, that's actually ours and you're borrowing it. And so you better share when someone asks, right? It's it is the same with us and the Lord. Do we believe that every dollar, every skill, every day off of work, every relationship is a gift from him and we have a responsibility as Christians to steward them well? One of the main messages here is that Christianity cannot be lazy religion. We spend ourselves for the kingdom. We take some risks. We work hard to multiply his kingdom to make sure that he gets more glory because of the way that I lived my life. Just like the good servants grew the money that he gave them to start with. God invested in you. And at the end of my life, I want him to be able to say, Katie was a good investment. She grew my money. She showed a return. We all want that, don't we? Well done, good and faithful servant. You grew what I gave you. He's given us a choice on what we're going to do with the opportunities that we, he's given us. And a part of living ready for Jesus to return at any point is choosing to work and to do good things with the opportunities in our relationships, our time, our money, our strengths and talents, all of it. Okay, so we have to have oil. We have to show return on investment. And we have to produce fruit. Let's go to the, to the final judgment, the goats and the sheep. I think I want to start off with another just perspective of God's heart here. He says to the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom I've prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then to the goats, he says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He did not prepare the fire for us. He doesn't want that to be the answer to anyone. He wants everyone to come into the um, kingdom that, we, that he has prepared for us. The difference between the goats and the sheep is that the sheep's love for God was evidenced by a love for their neighbor. And so it should be with us. Our love for God is evidenced by our love for our neighbor. Notice that both parties, the, the goats and the sheep, were surprised with what Jesus said to them. To the people on the right, they said, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we visit you? When did we give you food? I don't remember that. And in that, it's revealing of their heart, their true motive. They weren't trying to just earn brownie points with Jesus. They weren't doing it out of duty. Their genuine faith was not legalistically bound to works. Their faith had produced works in them. Austin mentioned it last week. James 2.17 says, faith without works is dead. 
what good is it if you say you have faith but don't have works? That's not a saving faith. The ones on his left were also surprised. If they had known that it was a test, they would have done it, right? And it's kind of like a math test. I guess I'm on a math kick here. If it's not enough to just have the answer, sometimes you have to show your work, right? You have to show that there's a depth. You have to show that there's understanding. And these people didn't get it. They didn't understand. They hadn't let the love of God penetrate the soil of their heart to produce the works that were required to show a real, genuine faith. It's similar to what we see in Luke 11, verse 42. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. You neglect justice and the love of God. I think that word neglect says it well. For the foolish virgins, the wicked and slothful servant, and to the goats. Their story was marked by neglect. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Notice the heading. It says, warning against neglecting salvation. Verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. In other words, it is possible to drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, this is true. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. God is just. There is judgment. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We cannot neglect this great gift of salvation. And yet we do so often. Can, can we just take a moment and think about the great gift that is our salvation? We get reconciliation to God. We get to be at peace with our maker and with our father where there was once um, a rift in that relationship. Now there's peace and we get to be close with him. We get to have this deep relationship with him. We get victory over our flesh that brings death and destruction. We get a way out of our sin and our brokenness. We get life abundantly starting now until eternity. And so we don't have to worry what men will do to this body. All we have to worry about is that we have an eternal hope in heaven. And we get hope in the circumstances of this life also. Isn't it a great salvation? Isn't it amazing? And yet we neglect it. We procrastinate and we say, we'll focus on that later. We live for ourselves and like it's all about us and our comfort. And we forget that it's God's and he wants a return on it. And we go along living a good life but not letting the love of God change us and produce in us a love for our neighbor that's just an overflow, a genuine faith that produces works. I said it before, I believe that Jesus is sharing these parables with the disciples because of his love for us and for them. He wants 
all to come into the wedding feast. He wants all to be on that inside of the door. He wants to say, come into the joy of your master. Come into the kingdom that I have planned for you from the foundation of the world. That is what he wants. And so I think it's important for us to take a moment and to ask ourselves, do I have enough oil? Have I taken risks in this faith? Am I producing fruit? Let's take this message for what it is, and that's an opportunity to shift, an opportunity to course correct if we need it. We need to stop saying, we'll worry about it later. Now is the time. And so maybe you're not sure which of the first, not, you're not sure which of the two types of people you are. And because of that, you're not sure which of the two destinations you're going to if Jesus returns. Today is your day. Today is the day to put your faith in Jesus. St. Augustine said, I like this quote, God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. Let today be the day that you come. Come forward, talk to Austin and I, get prayer. Um, Talk to the person that you came with, but do not let another day pass without making Jesus your Lord and Savior. And maybe you know that you've made that decision and you know which destination you're going to, but you know that you've been living according to your flesh and you've been sitting on some opportunities that God, uh, you know God wants to, you to do something with. How are you going to orient your life around this great salvation? How are you going to cultivate it and not neglect it? Let it grow in you. Maybe you take a a couple minutes and write some things down. Maybe you have to get rid of some things or add in some things, but don't wait another day before you orient your life that Jesus is coming back and I want to be ready. Finally, as Easter approaches and we're celebrating Jesus' first coming, right? And the great salvation that came through that first coming, let's have his second coming on our mind as well. It's not too late for a loved one. It's not too late to have an honest conversation. It's not too late to take some risks. We're still here. Jesus hasn't come yet. We're still waiting. And so let's get ourselves ready. Amen. Would you stand with me? God, I just pray right now that you would speak to each person in this room that you would convict and comfort and call us into whatever it is that you, um, whatever action step we might take this morning. Help us not to let this day pass without uh, getting ready for you and making a plan for that. Thank you that you're returning for your bride and that we have hope in heaven and that we get to enter into that marriage feast because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on the cross. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 